Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than the pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing, a great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, and now your host, Shane Ryan. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is Shane. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, episode number, I don't know what. Uh, it's been so long since we uh, we had a show. There's about a month hiatus in there. Uh, I appreciate you guys sticking around for that. And part of the reason we're back today is because it gave me an excuse to talk to my guest, Jeff Perlman. Uh, Jeff is a writer I have admired for a very long time. He worked for Sports Illustrated for a while uh, and moved on that to work on the very long-form features known as books. Uh, and it's one of these quote-unquote books uh, that explains his presence on Apocalypse Sports Radio today. Um, Jeff this week is releasing his newest book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. Um, and he was kind enough to provide me with a digital copy of this book, which I blazed through in about two nights. Uh, it is so good. Uh, it's one of those books that if you have any interest at all in basketball or in any of the Lakers personalities, which, I mean, if you're a sports fan, the answer to that is yes, uh, you're just going to blaze through this and uh, and you're really, really going to enjoy it. So yeah, big pleasure to have Jeff on. Uh, I think we had a really good chat and he was a great guest and you're going to enjoy it. Um, other than that, I don't think I have a ton to say. Uh, the Patreon is dead, so you know this podcast at this point will just be when I have guests I like, I'll have them on, and that'll be that. And I won't ask you for three dollars a month anymore, so our relationship can now be much more organic, much less superficial. And yeah, that's about it. So let's get to Jeff again. This book is set to be released. Let's see, today is Monday, and this book will be coming out tomorrow, Tuesday, September twenty second. So it'll be available in all the usual spots. And again, I highly recommend that you get it. And now, to the man of the moment, here he is, Jeff Perlman. Segment break. All right, Jeff, welcome. How you doing, sir? I'm uh, tired and beaten down by the world, but otherwise <laughs> I'm pretty good. Well, let's see. Congratulations on the uh, imminent release of your book. We're speaking on Friday, and I think Tuesday the 22nd is the release day. Do I have that right? You do, but it's kind of funny because you start getting like, uh, I've been getting emails from people or like tweets Oh my God, I was in my Barnes and Noble and there was your book. So I bought it and I'm like, oh, all right. So I guess it depends where you are. I cannot speak for the bookstores of North Carolina, but uh, it might be random spots where you can find it. That's interesting. Well, this will come out Monday. So uh, (laughs) you can rush out to your bookstore Monday, folks, or you can just wait. It might be there. It might be there. Uh, Yeah. And so your book is obviously a three ring circus. It's about the the L.A. Lakers. And um, I I guess the first question I I always want to ask people who are releasing books around this time is... Forgetting the subject matter for a second, has the pandemic like hit you hard at all? I mean, do you expect it to be a hindrance in some way, or is it is it okay because we're a little bit into it now? No, it sucks. Um, mm-hmm. No, it's 
keeping in mind the fact that um, I have it far easier than most people and I'm really lucky and I, I, my wife and I both work and our jobs are secure and blah, blah, blah. Like, so all that stuff aside, um, one of the joys of writing a book, one of the big joys of writing a book is you basically spend two to three years in a, in a hole writing a book and you're, you're isolated and you're by yourself and you're in your own thoughts and it's a lot of highs and a lot of lows and blah, blah, blah. And when the book comes out, it's generally exciting to promote a book. Like it's exciting. You know, you go on, you go yeah. different places. And I mean, for me, some of the great highs have been like doing my hometown bookstore and having my parents come and watch me little things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. It means something to you. Well, now it's basically all zoom and, and you know, I'm sitting in my dumpy office and you don't get to go anywhere. And it just, it takes a tiny bit of the bloom off the rose. You know, it's a, it's a little bit set. It's like preparing for your bar mitzvah for two years and then having to do it over zoom. You know, yeah. it's not quite <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's still cool. And you're proud you have a book and you worked hard, but there's something special about going out there and talking to people that, you know, you don't get to do as much here. And so. you, yeah. And obviously you're a veteran of a lot of books. And so, yeah, that seems tough. And the first thing I wanted to ask you, first of all, I'd love this book. It's one of those basketball books where it, you consume it immediately. Um, I think your book is around 400 pages, but it just flows so incredibly. It's if you have any interest at all in, in guys like Kobe and who doesn't, uh, it's just it's just such a wonderful read. Um, but your the timing of this release is curious in another respect, uh, and I wanted to ask you about the uh, the prologue you wrote, where mm -hmm. essentially you wrote this warts and all, and you know that cliche is used often, but this really is a warts and all story about the Lakers, and Kobe was a huge part of that, and you know you tell the story of things that. You provide more details, but we things we kind of knew already about how insecure he could be at times, how defensive, uh, how unlikable in some ways. And then crazy timing. I mean, Kobe Bryant dies and it's just a fact of life that when somebody dies, we, you know, we tend to canonize them. We remember all the good things. And here you are coming out with a book <laughs> that looks at Kobe Bryant's like, you know, some of the really like downsides of him. And in the prologue, you're like, listen, this wasn't the person who he was when he was playing is not who he ended up being. And you know, I don't mean to insult Kobe Bryant and all this stuff, but yeah, talk about that timing a little bit because what a what a wild thing to have happen. Um, you know, obviously your book is not like the focus of Kobe Bryant's death, but it, it is an interesting thing to have happen when you just come out with a book on this guy. You know, I um, I think either the day Kobe died or the day after I was driving and I was talking to a, uh, I was talking to someone and she said, and she wasn't, she really wasn't trying to be malicious. It just kind of popped in her head. She said, so this is good for your book, right? <laughs> and I was, I was really horrified. Like I was genuinely horrified to hear anyone even think that for a second. Like I, if you said to me, this book was zero copies, but Kobe Bryant, his daughter and the others who died in that crash are alive. Obviously, you know, like it's just a book, right, you know, like right. those are lives. And that guy, I mean, he left behind three kids and all those people who they left behind and families were wiped out and futures were wiped out. It's so far beyond a book, you know? And, and so first just living out here and Kobe Ryan didn't live that far away from where I'm, I live. And he meant so much to people. I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's very true. Like he meant so much to people and he even took on a meaning, I think beyond he gained this status in retirement that almost felt bigger in a way like people, the whole mama mentality thing. Yeah. It was corny and it was kind of goofy and blah, blah, but it meant something to people. It actually meant something to people like this, this idea that if you set a goal and you work your ass off, you actually can achieve it. And here's this guy who's living proof of it. Like that meant something to people. So fi I finished the book. I'm sitting in a coffee shop. It's January 26th. 
morning, January 26th, my kids are in Hebrew school and I, in Irvine, California, and I'm nearby just sitting in a corner bakery. And a friend of mine named Amy Bass texted me and said, Kobe Bryant possibly dead. And, you know, and I, wait, what? You know, like what? And it, it just didn't really sink in for a while. That's cliche too, but really didn't. Mm -hmm. And um, then you're like, well, after a while, a couple of days, you're like, well, I have, I do have a book coming out. The book is done. What am I supposed to do with this? You know, like, like you said, I don't think the book is cruel to Kobe Bryant, but it's not, it's not a glowing portrait of Kobe Bryant either. I mean, it should be. I mean, it's like, it's, it's not a hagiography and it's so good because of that. But the timing, like contrary to what the woman said, if we are considering the practical element, I would think like, Oh God, like I've got this book where I expose some things about Kobe Bryant. And here, here we are at a time because of this crazy circumstance where we only want to, you know, hear great things about him and et cetera, et cetera. I had a, um, I've been texting with a guy who played with Kobe. I won't say his name. And he, uh, he's reading the book right now. And he texted me last night because he was reading the chapters about Eagle Colorado and the rape accusations right. and everything that happened and Kobe's interview with the, with the detectives. And he's like, I am actually shaking reading your book right now because I, I just, it's just a lot, you know, like it's just a lot. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it would be a lot, even if you were alive, but it just carries something. It's, it's, I don't know what this is going to be like. I really don't. I don't know if people are going to be like, because I wrote a Walter Payton biography and there was some backlash to that book. The difference is nobody, Walter Payton was, um, he was just a golden figure in Chicago and there was nothing wrong with Walter Payton. Right. People right. were aware about Kobe Bryant and sort of the flaws yeah. and the arrogance and blah, blah. So I don't know what it's going to be like, but it, it's a long winding answer. It's been super weird. Yeah, no. And it, it is funny to see how people are going to react because it's, we already have this instinct in American culture, I think, to where if somebody is rich and powerful to kind of sweep things under the rug anyway, uh, after time has gone by or to give them the benefit of the doubt, even when you have very, very serious things like the rape accusations in Colorado, and then you add to that his death. Yeah, it's just one of those interesting things. But for me, it's like uh, ideally people would read it as a gift to have this story at this time because I think it gives a full picture. And like you said, I don't think you're ungenerous to Kobe. And I think you do show his growth in certain ways. Um, it's just you know that, what I just say? Yeah. One thing I was just thinking when you were saying this, and you, I thought this because of you, it's almost like what we're, what I'm about to experience is a car crash between, it's like car wall between the sort of nuance and length of a book, mm -hmm. right? And the immediacy of social media. So yeah. you have these two conflicting things coming together, a book, a 400 page book, which really in a way feels like a bygone era. It isn't, but obviously, you know, and no. this whole, like, I need to be angry. I need to be outraged. I need to have a take. I'm Stephen A. Smith. I'm <laughs> right. Skip Bayless. I'm Jason Whitlock. And I need to have a take right now. And those two things colliding is a really awkward collision. If you think about it. Well, yeah, because you can imagine somebody going, how dare Jeff Perlman in the wake of Kobe's death, like write this negative book about, right. I mean, if somebody were looking for a quick hit like that, I, I don't know if that will happen and hopefully it won't, but that that's the kind of the thought I had. Sure. And I almost thought you were trying to like, with your introduction, you were almost trying to mitigate that and acknowledge yes. and saying like, don't do this because here's the actual, like here's actually what happened. I'm telling you like the Walter Payton experience, the Walter Payton book I wrote about a decade ago, sports illustrated ran an excerpt on the cover a, a couple of weeks before the book came out. Nobody had seen the book yet. The excerpt was all about the end of his life when he was kind of depressed and infidelity and, and you know, suicidal thoughts. Yeah. And the backlash, because no one knew the book yet. The right. And also because Walter Payton in Chicago is iconic times a million. The backlash was, I mean, unlike. 
So I feel like I am actually the guy in the car bracing for a collision, you know, like, because I've been through it. It's like, I've been through a car crash once before yeah. and it's, you know, I'm kind of like that again. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've only written one book, but it, it is that weird paradoxical or contradictory thing where you don't want to be judged by the one most controversial excerpt. However, when you are giving excerpts out, especially to online outlets, you do want to give the most controversial one because because that is why let them pick it. I didn't I didn't give that to them. Okay, I, in yeah. hindsight, that was a horrible mistake on my part. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, it was a huge yeah. mistake on my part. Yeah, so. but it is what gets people talking. Yeah, it's one of those mm-hmm. things. Um, so yeah, so okay, let, getting back to the book. Um, I just thought like the portrait of Kobe w- was so thorough. Uh, one part I wanted to bring up maybe as a a lead into the conversation about him. Uh, in one part of the book, you talk about the teams in Hawaii during his rookie year for their, for the initial training camp and everybody's going around uh, and introducing themselves and people are doing these very like, Hey, I'm from Arkansas. Like, what's up? I hope to contribute. And he gets to Kobe and I'm just going to quote Kobe says, and by the way, he's injured. He has a wrist injury at this point. So he's not even playing. He says, yo, I'm yeah. Kobe, Kobe Bryant. I'm from PA, went to lower Marion high school, dominated everything. I just want y'all to know nobody's going to punk me. I'm not going to let anyone in the NBA punk me. So be warned. And you just, as with so many other parts in this book with Kobe, you just cringe. You just cringe thinking, what is he doing? Like, just an unbelievable talent, unbelievable competitor, but such a poor instinct in some ways and how to interact with other people. I mean, yes, it's really, it's funny to hear it even like, um, you kind of think about it, right? He's a, uh, he's obviously an African-American kid, spent a lot of his youth in Italy, then spent the rest of his youth in the leafy, mostly white suburbs of Philadelphia. He never went to college. Um, he took Brandy to his senior prom. He had never met Brandy before. He took Brandy to his senior prom. <laughs> People Magazine was there to chronicle him taking Brandy to his senior prom. <laughs> like, I just, I really think like, um, one thing we do to athletes and celebrities that kind of drives me crazy, like you and I, right? We, 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 before we started recording, we have a conversation. It's like, hey, what's up? How you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And it's, that's what you do. And you're natural doing it because mm-hmm. we, this, we live normal lives. He didn't like, he did not know how to interact with people and he really, really, really had to work at it. And one of the things that I just found interesting throughout the book is the efforts he made repeatedly to take on a persona and to, to make it fit, whether it was imitating Michael Jordan mm-hmm. with licking his lips and uh, the cadence and blah, blah, whether it was trying to be sort of hardened like Allen Iverson or Stefan Marbury when he entered the league. Um, when he had the rape, when he was going through that and he started getting tattoos and, you know, started cursing a lot. Like he was always, it was like he was auditioning for a part. Yeah. Yeah. And he could never fully figure it out. Yeah, and I, I find him to be a figure of pity in a lot of ways, even though he's a multi-million, or, you know, <laughs> hundred millionaire uh, athlete and and beloved. Um, because, yeah, you, you see something about Jordan and whatever you think of Jordan, he is the original article. There's no arguing that he's phony or insincere in any way. But like you said, it always felt like Kobe... I remember watching, um, I can't remember, I think it was an ESPN production where he, it showed him like talking to his teammates when, this was when he was a veteran and sort of being a team leader and they did this thing. And even then it's like, he's trying to play a role and you wonder like, what is the essential Kobe or was there ever an essential Kobe? Like, did you ever get a sense? Is there, is there just a vacuum like inside there and he's always trying to, to play act so that there's a character? I mean, I think in a way, if you think about it, that that might be who the essential Kobe is. Like a guy, I kind of agree with you. I, pity sounds harsh, but I think it's kind of fair. Like I actually, 
I feel like there, there might be an instinct of people to say, wow, you're really hard on, on him. And I actually think it's the opposite. I actually feel bad for him. Like yeah. I felt bad for him throughout this book. I thought, here's a guy who doesn't, just doesn't know how to fit in. And his defense mechanism is to not fit in. His defense mechanism is Shaq takes all his teammates out for dinner and he shows up 20 minutes later and gets his own table with a book. Like, mm. it's almost like, or like his first, when he's playing summer league, right? And there's like, everyone is dressed a certain way. It's summer league. It's not a big deal. And he shows up with like the three wristbands here and the so-and-so wristbands here. And he has to do the high fives. Like, yeah. it, was, it, you, it was so, now, especially as you get older and you look at younger people and you remember yourself as a younger person, you can identify it so easily that it is a guy pre-thinking every single move, yeah. except when he's on the basketball court and it's all instinctive and beautiful, but socially and cool and image. Like I've said this, my roommate um, back in the nineties, early nineties was a mid nineties was a guy named Russ Bankston. who was the editor of slam magazine. We used to room together and slam magazine was hip hop and, and yeah. basketball. Yeah. It was Iverson with his hair blown out yep. and it was Steph Marbury. And it was, and when Kobe was on the cover, which he was a bunch of times, it was the most awkward and weird fit. <laughs> yeah. It just didn't make sense because he couldn't pull that off, even though he was trying. I just, it's really sad in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's something there that's kind of sad. So. Yeah, no. And like what you said about everybody being able to identify with it, it does feel like the emotions that constantly ran through me in junior high or, or high school, where it's like insecurity on one hand, and then this um, secondary thing of wanting to pretend that you're not hurt and, you know, trying to make it, trying to seem like everything's fine. And, yeah, to think of somebody in his position with so much attention on him doing that for a full life, it just seems like it must have been so tiring to be in his head in a certain way. Yeah, I think so, too. And, you know, there's a guy I talked to. I'm big into talking to sort of the, like, obscure guys and the guys who come in camp in a little bit. And there was a guy um, named Paul Shirley, right, who played at, uh, played at Iowa State, and he was in camp with the Lakers for one year. Mm -hmm. And he talked about... Paul Shirley was like, he wasn't going to make the Lakers, right? He wasn't going to make the Lakers. He was no threat to Kobe whatsoever. Yeah. And there's this one play. I actually opened a chapter with, where, where they're, they're doing a scrimmage and Shirley goes in for a layup and it's kind of soft and Kobe comes from behind and he smacks it and Shirley goes tumbling to the ground and um, Kobe stands above him. He says, get that fucking weak shit out of here. You, you, you fucking pussy. Yeah. And, and he's, you know, he's, he's pointing to his, you know, thing and, and, the quote, Paul, I actually looked it up because I thought it was the best quote I had about explaining Kobe Bryant was from Paul Shirley. And he said he had zero authenticity. And they said it was as if he saw himself in a movie writing his own dialogue. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, nailed it. Like nailed it. That's that's so that's so insightful. Yeah. And that and that's the kind of thing where you're like Jordan would never have done that to a Paul Shirley like figure. You know, when no. Jordan was being aggressive and a dick, it was always for some kind of purpose, whether it was to intimidate someone for a good reason or to lift a teammate up or whatever. But it's like, yeah, Kobe learned the beats of it without learning the purpose behind it. Um, one thing you mentioned before and that that's I, well said. That's <laughs> really well said. That actually is spot on too. You're actually right. He got the beats, but he didn't it's almost like he heard the music, but he didn't know the beat. Yeah, like he heard the music, yeah, right. he, he was off on the beat. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. he could say the lyrics, but no rhythm. Um, right. Yeah, like so, me. He's basically me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you ever see me at a wedding, same deal. It's it's horrible. Uh, so, um, but the thing you mentioned before, and what I love, one piece I really loved in the book is talking about how at sometimes it almost seemed like he was doing a Michael Jordan impression. Uh, and one guy I've written a lot about, Patrick Reed, the golfer who won the Masters a couple years ago. 
Same exact thing uh, with Tiger Woods, where not only does he wear like a red shirt on Sundays, uh, not only did he, you know, when he was a kid, do little things that were almost like this homage, but if you hear him talk, he speaks He speaks in that same clipped cadence that Tiger Woods has, uh, to the point where you're like, oh man, this is pathological. This is, yeah. it's like almost creepy, but like it's, um, what's the movie with Matt Damon uh, and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman? Um Talented Mr. Ripley, where, where somebody is basically doing an impression of another person. Um, so talk about that a little bit. Like Kobe really almost seemed to be like he used to watch these Michael Jordan video clips as a kid in Italy that his grandfather would send him. And it seems like he was on this path to just sort of become him in a weird way. Let me ask you, do you feel like I'm reduced because I've never seen the talented Mr. Ripley? Oh, not at all. No, uh, I don't. I don't judge people by that. I, I don't think I've seen the third Star Wars, so I can't. Oh, all right. Yeah, you mean the Ewok adventure, that one? No, not that. I mean, like the third original Star Wars. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, um, it's a good movie, though, I will say, if you ever, you know, have, a, oh, right. have two Fair hours enough. free. Um, in a way, if you think of it. So, all right. We, we acknowledge that it's kind of there's something different about mimicking someone. If you want to flip that on his head, though, like he he wanted to be Jordan, he imitated Jordan, and then he almost became Jordan, yeah. which is actually kind of amazing. You know, it's not like he became Harold Minor; he actually became right. Michael Jordan and was as close to Jordan as any player we've ever seen. If you look at the approach to the game, the results, the wins—I mean, Jordan had six rings, Kobe had five. You know, like it's he. I mean, if you really want to flip it, I don't know if we've ever had a more determined athlete. I would say there's certain athletes. It's a rare occurrence when the hardest worker is also the most athletically gifted. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I can do one hand. I can do Walter Payton, Jerry Rice are two guys who they were the hardest workers and the most athletically gifted. Yeah. And Kobe was that guy too. He mm -hmm. was the most athletic and he was, and so, yeah, maybe it was weird that he wanted to be Jordan or something. I don't know. There's some, you know, Freudian thing there, but like he did become it. So that's kind of amazing that yeah. he starts oh, watching yeah. these videos when he's a kid in Italy and he actually becomes what he wanted to become. I mean, that's freaking unbelievable. Yeah, it's outrageous. And you almost think like it would take that level of commitment <laughs> if you were to succeed yeah. in that kind of endeavor. Because who doesn't want to be Michael Jordan? But if, unless you're like, like I said, pathological about it, it's probably never going to happen. And Kobe was. And yeah, and I mean, that's the way people consider him now for the most part. Uh, so yeah. I mean, I just want to say like when I was a kid growing up in Mayo Pack, New York, my parents got me for a birthday. Michael Jordan basketball and I was in my driveway and I was doing these shots, but they were going over the backboard and clanging <laughs> off the rim. And so I wanted it too, but you know, Kobe Bryant had something I didn't. So yeah. he was, and you should say maybe what you want. the guy was special. He was special. When That's it comes right. to basketball. Yeah. Um, and then I let, let's talk about Shaq too, because for the most part, I mean, it gets complicated later on, but for the most part, I, I got the impression that when you're talking about Shaquille O'Neal in Orlando in college, and then when he starts at the Lakers, this is somebody who actually conforms with the public image of him, which is nice guy, kind of gentle giant, you know, competitive in his own right and everything like that. And he has his own insecurities, but pretty much somebody who's well liked and who is what he seems to be. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's funny. I did an interview the other day with uh, Pat Williams, who used to be the general manager of the Orlando magic. And, and Pat has a, has a podcast he's had for years, a radio show. And, um, he said to me, he's like, isn't it kind of interesting? I forgot the exact words, but isn't it kind of interesting? He didn't, he couldn't coexist with Penny Hardaway in Orlando, and he couldn't really coexist with Kobe in LA. He's one of the best teammates who's ever lived. He might be the best superstar teammate who's ever lived. He mm -hmm. he did more things 
for teammates who didn't really matter than any athlete ever, whether it was buying people suits, paying for a relative's funeral, flying in family member. There's never been a better teammate. Never, yeah. never has there been a better teammate than Shaquille O'Neal. He definitely needed to be the quote unquote alpha. Like he needed it, you know? Yeah. And not only that, he needed the number two guy to acquiesce to him. Mm-hmm. So his pro- problem with Kobe began very early on, probably began right around the same time Kobe saying, ain't nobody going to punk me because what the hell are you talking about? You're supposed to be getting me orange juice. Like, <laughs> right, you, you right. know what I mean? Like you're supposed to yeah. be getting me orange juice every morning. You're not supposed to be. And he needed, he, wa- it's funny because, um, there's always this idea that like, Oh, Kobe comes in and he's the insecure youngster and Shaq's the established veteran. And it was really the opposite. Like Kobe was very secure in who he was. Mm-hmm. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to accomplish. Now there might be insecurities below that beneath that surface, but he knew what he wanted to be. And Shaq is like, why is this, this guy not listening to me? Why right. this is kind of hurting my plan. I'm, I'm, I'm Batman. You're Robin. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you not doing that? I'm supposed to be giving you advice. When I put my arm around you, you're supposed to listen. Why are you not listening? And um, yeah. it drove him freaking crazy. And when, when Dale Harris got fired and Kurt Rambis was the interim coach, and Kurt Rambis basically said to all these players, you guys really need to help Kobe out. You need to help him develop. All these guys, and certainly Shaq, were like, screw that. Like, he, doesn't, he has no interest in us. Yeah. So why are, we, why are we going out of our way? It was a super weird relationship. It really was. Yeah, and it's interesting that you talk about mentioning that, you know, Shaq couldn't coexist with either one. And with Kobe, you go, well, that's a two-way street, obviously. But Penny Hardaway, by all counts, very humble guy, not a difficult Quiet. teammate at all. But even even having someone with a little bit of glow uh, alongside him kind of rubs Shaq the wrong way. Like, great teammate to anybody who's not going to challenge his sense of his aura, his celebrity. But even if there's somebody like Penny Hardaway who does, that can kind of create some friction. I'll tell you one thing. It doesn't all come back. Like every now and then I think about, like, I feel like you can take examples from sports and you don't always have to compare it to sports. You compare it to your own life. Right. Mm -hmm. And I actually think about this when I was a young writer and I was first writing books and someone else, maybe someone else would have a book come out around the same time I did. But let's say I have a book coming out about the Mets and this guy has a book coming out about the Celtics. I would view it as a threat a little bit. Yeah. And I'd be like, I'd, I'd look at my numbers on Amazon or whatever and look at that person's numbers on Amazon. And if they were ahead of me, I'd be kind of annoyed, right? Yeah. And then as you get older, you you kind of learn someone else's success does not impact your success. It doesn't take away from your success if someone else is doing well. But when you're young and you're hyper competitive mm-hmm. and you probably place too much importance on certain things, your brain reacts. And so, you know, it's the quote, youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. And I feel like Shaq, when he was a young player, had a tough time dealing with guys kind of coming close to his throne. And I think as he got older, he got better about it. Certainly by the time he was in Miami with Dwayne Wade, he was had no problem with it. I think as a young player, he struggled with that, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, what do you think of him on Inside the NBA, by the way? I want to, <laughs> I'm always curious because a lot of people started out with like, you know, Shaq ruined the show. It was these three guys before him. Uh, what do you think? I thought at first I was like, this is ridiculous. Like they're just bringing this guy in because he's Shaq and he's yeah. killing the chemistry. He's found himself though. I actually think he's really found himself in the, the, the interplay between him and, uh, and Barkley is actually pretty, it's one of my favorite sports TV shows, I guess. I don't, it's not like yeah. appointment viewing for me, but when it's on, I actually really enjoy it. Why? No, not a fan. No, no, I'm the same way. And I, my friends and I are similar in that it, when he came on, you're like, why are you doing like, why are you ruining a good thing? Like, why do you need this guy? Um, but now I'm, I'm with you. Like his energy somehow works perfectly. And, the, the the weird combination 
of the, like this sort of calm demeanor that both he and Barkley have with like the vicious things they'll say to each other when they're when they're mad at each other and the real like the real bile between them but that then just settles into nothing I think it's pretty entertaining so yeah I'm, I'm with you I think against the odds I think he uh, he's a positive uh, for that I, I, I'll tell you one thing so um I thought this was telling and really interesting and kind of cool keep in mind this is when Kobe was alive obviously um I went to Atlanta to interview Shaq and he was great could not have been better he was cool just a really nice guy and um toward the end of the interview i was like i my i think my final question was something along the lines of i was like you know there's something i always think about with you and kobe that kind of interests me which is you always created these nicknames for yourself but it was always with a wink like it was always like a, he was in on the joke right yeah you know uh, big aristotle and shaq diesel and all that stuff it was always with a, it was always a he was in on the joke yeah and i was like but kobe nicknamed himself black mamba and thought of himself as the black mamba you know like and i was like that just always struck me as a little as telling and he goes to me he goes now you know what i've been dealing with bro and, and that was it and i just thought like that's pretty freaking good you know like yeah one guy's in on the and shaq's beauty and what works for shaq is he's always been in on the joke yeah you know like he's always it is preposterous i'm making millions of dollars to wear amped up pajamas and throw a ball through a rip like that is preposterous mm -hmm. and i'm going to enjoy it every way i can yeah no and yeah and kobe obviously does not have any of that same sense of humor about himself and before i ask you um for your perspective on the split between them one thing i meant to ask you before about kobe um that you kind of hinted at and you write about a lot in the book is the racial element of him where he's you know He's a black man, right? So he's not going to fit in. Like, he's not going to be considered part of white culture. However, he grows up in Italy learning fluent Italian. Um, he lives kind of this suburban lifestyle. You know, I have cousins in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania. It's a very wealthy part of the mm -hmm. country. Um, and so there's a sense, too, that he doesn't necessarily fit in with other black players in the, in the NBA. Um, it's kind of, I don't know if it's too glib an explanation, but does that s somewhat get at the central insecurity of this guy? It's probably above my pay grade a little bit. <laughs> yeah. um, I do think, though, he certainly had a fish out of water. Again, like the NBA in the mid-90s when he came along was a really interesting place. And it's actually probably my favorite era of the NBA. Because um, like I said, Slam Magazine kind of exemplified a lot of what was going on, which was hip-hop, <laughs> basketball, tattoos, cornrows, free expression, baggy clothes, you know, like there was a brief moment where I think the NBA was making everyone wear suits and Iverson, yeah. the backlash against that. And, and it was this really cool, interesting era of like free expression. I really think of Iverson as the, the definitive player of that period. And everyone kind of loved Allen Iverson because there was something about, I, I did not grow up a Sixers fan. I didn't care about Allen, but like there's something about him that was really appealing yeah. and that he was basically like, screw off y'all. I'm going to be me. Kobe never fit into that. Never. He always felt kind of like an imposter or just like you said earlier, like it was kind of sad watching him try to be something he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's specifically because he was brought up in Italy. I mean, there are like Rick Fox. I talked to Rick Fox at length about this. Rick Fox spoke Italian. He was the uh, son of immigrant parents, you know, he was Canadian. And he really tried to relate to Kobe on that level of like, look, we both speak Italian and blah, blah, blah. And, and a lot of guys came along. It's not like all these Laker guys, were street hardened tough guys from Gary, Indiana. A lot of right, these guys were, right. you know, but even those guys, they just couldn't reach him in very real, profound ways. 
it just was really hard to do. So I don't really know why, but it was. That's interesting. Yeah, and like there's certain things like you in your prologue you write about the time he punched some Maki Walker over some negligible mm. debt, like a hundred dollar debt or something, where it's like you could tell the anger that was building in him. I think Walker kind of poo-pooed him whenever he asked for money. He yeah, yeah, I'll pay you later, I'll pay you later. And you could feel the anger building, certainly not about the money, but it was about the sense of disrespect and the sense that this person uh felt that Kobe wasn't somebody who he really needed to be scared of, you know, in, in that sense. Like, I don't, I just screw this guy. And that hit Kobe in a certain way, probably because it's at the core of his identity or, or the insecurity about his identity. Yeah. And you could see like, again, like I guarantee you one thing I'm very certain on is like, that was three steps ahead of time. That was not an instinctive reaction to that was like, all right, this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go on the bus. I'm going to ask for the money. He's either going to have it and I'll take the money or he's not going to have it. What I'm going to have to do is show that I'm a tough guy and I'm a, you know, I'm a man and then I'm going to hit him and then blah, blah, blah. And it's exactly what happened. But Samaki Walker's like, stop the bus. Phil, stop the fucking bus. Yeah. And uh, is cursing okay, by the way? Did I? Uh, no, 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 I, no, please. Yeah, this okay. is, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and, and they stopped the bus. And basically, it's funny. There's a long history of guys throughout the book, actually, calling Kobe's bluff, right? Every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Mike Penberthy, Mike Penberthy, free agent guard from Masters College, at one point calls Kobe's bluff. And he's like, what, you want to go? And like, it's a cliche, but it's true. Like, as soon as you call the guy's bluff, it's kind of like when Buster Douglas punched Mike Tyson. As soon as you punch Mike Tyson and knock him out, that aura vanishes a little bit. Right. So Samaki Walker, as soon as he's like, all right, let's get off the bus. Let's do this. Kobe's like, no, nah, it's okay. I don't need to do this. Yeah. You know, same yeah. with Mike Pemberthy. Really? You want to go? All right, no, we're good. So mm-hmm. there was a level of certain, I want to test you and see what you're going to be. Oh, shoot. You actually took, you actually took the bait. And now I don't know what to do with that. And it reminds me of Jordan too. I mean, you know, the thing, anybody tested him, he was, he was going at him. I mean, you like the way he punched Steve Kerr, even if somebody didn't test him and he thought, he thought they were testing him. Uh, another difference there. Um, so let me ask you quickly, one last Lakers question about Shaq and Kobe. Um, based on what, based on your book and based on what you said so far, I get the sense that this was a doomed relationship from the beginning, but what do you tell me about the failure of that? Tell me how this broke down and, you know, was it always destined to from the start? I think it probably was. I mean, you couldn't tell early, but you know, it's a couple of things here. It's a great, it's actually a great question. Like number one, I think we do something with that, with the, the two of them, that's lazy and not real, which is we'd be like on the court, their talents really meshed. Like, not really. Like, yeah. it worked because they were two of the five most talented players in the in the NBA. You know, like, I wouldn't say Kobe. Like, I think Kobe, I think Shaq would have meshed naturally with an Allen Iverson, actually. Like, a point guard who was going to throw lobs regularly. Like, the reason that lob, you know, the lob against Portland is so iconic between, with short catch, uh, Kobe and Shaq is number one Shaq's reaction, but number two, it actually didn't happen that yeah, often. Yeah, it was infrequent, right? It wasn't, no. it was so rare. Yeah. Usually Kobe was shooting that shot. You know, like it wasn't, yeah. so like, I think it's myth when people are like, oh, their talents were like, no, they were just great. They were just better than you. Like they were more talented than you. Yeah. Um, I feel like that last season, 0304 is really a window into everything that was kind of bad and brewing about that relationship, which is Shaq is a little doughy and he's getting older and that used to drive Kobe crazy that he didn't keep himself in the shape he thought he should. Mm-hmm. Um, Kobe's going through the sexual assault trial and he does not feel that Shaq is being supportive at all. You know, he's like, he didn't even call me, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, Kobe is about to be a free agent and he's kind of decided he's going to go to the Clippers 
at one point during a game, he says to the Clippers coach, Mike Dunleavy, get me out of here. Um, Shaq wants the Lakers to renegotiate his contract. And Jerry Buss is, is just basically dragging his feet. And Kobe's certainly not speaking on behalf of Shaq having his contract renegotiated. Right. Phil Jackson wants his contract renegotiated. Kobe does not want to play for Phil Jackson anymore. Shaq is pissed off. It was like everything came to a head that season. And it's funny because there was a moment in the book. It's probably my, the money quote of the book in a lot of ways for me. I, I, had, I went to Starbucks with Kareem Rush, who is uh, Kobe's backup guard with the Lakers that year. And it was after they lost to the Pistons in game five of the finals. And they were done. Finals was over. Lakers have a little team shindig in Michigan after that game. Kareem Rush is young, and he's like, Kareem Rush is funny because Kareem Rush was like, I thought everything was going pretty well. He's like, we lost in the finals, but Carmelo was hurt. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know. Shaq's here. Kobe's here. We're great. This is great. And Kobe walks in and says to him, I ain't playing with that motherfucker ever again. And Kareem Rush, I just kind of love the Kareem Rush going like, wait, what? You know, like I thought. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. This is my future. <laughs> but, um. He just like he was done. So when 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 the Lakers decided to to trade Shaq to Miami, not offer Phil, tell Phil he's done, and re-sign Kobe. And Kobe has a press conference, and he's asked, "Does Shaq not returning? Does Shaq being traded have anything to do with you being back here?" And Kobe's saying, "No, not at all. That was bullshit." Yeah, like, yeah. He wanted him bullshit. gone. Right. It was done. It just wasn't. It's funny. I just want to say like when people are like, they should have won more titles. They should. No, like. In the same way, the 86 Mets, where I wrote a book about, like, people would be like, they should have won more. And I'm like, yeah, but Dwight Gooden and Darryl Strawberry were cocaine addicts. Yeah, so they yeah. weren't going to win more. <laughs> they, it wasn't going like, to happen. Yeah. It wasn't going to happen. And it wasn't going to happen here either. It just wasn't, wasn't going to happen. I remember um, I was at a Shins concert in uh, in Carborough, North Carolina, the night that Detroit beat them. And the, the lead singer, actually, of the band announced it when it happened. And everybody went nuts. And I always think about that because it's like, Oh, of course, everybody always hates a dynasty if you're not explicitly a fan of them. But it felt like there was a lot of joy when that Detroit team beat the Lakers. And they were, you know, famously one of the only NBA champions ever without a true superstar, that Detroit team. Yeah. Um, this year, we might, see, we might see it again if the Lakers don't win. But, uh, yeah, it did feel like there was maybe a special hatred somehow uh, of that dynasty by that point. I think that happens with every... Yeah, probably. Especially big city dynasties and team franchises, you know, Yankees, Cowboys, Lakers, they all go through that kind of crap, you know? Yeah. So it wasn't special about Kobe. Um, well, let me ask you, Jeff, a little bit uh, about the most important subject, Jeff Perlman himself. <laughs> Tell me, wow. uh, you're an upstate New Yorker like me. Can you pronounce the name of the town you grew up in again for me? Ugh, I know. Mah I, a, I just want to say there's a woman who owns the freight. There's a cafe in my hometown called the Freight House Cafe. And whenever she hears me talk about my hometown, she gets really upset. I say Mayo Pack, okay. but she insists, and the people there insist it is Maho Pack. Oh, interesting. So there's a battle going on. <laughs> Shout out to Donna Massaro of the Freight House Cafe, who hates my pronunciation of I was going to say, are you the only person on your side of the battle, or is there a contingent? It depends when you grew up there. Okay. So it depends on okay. time period, really. You know. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that town. Uh, and like, well, what did your folks do when you grew up? And you know, when did writing become a thing that you thought, oh, this is something maybe I'd be interested in doing? Yeah, so my uh, Joan and Stan Perlman, my uh, my mom was a probation officer. My dad was a uh, he ran an executive search firm, his own executive search firm. Like uh, he was a headhunter, basically. Okay. And uh, that's funny because you mentioned, and I didn't understand this reference, but you mentioned someone I think Stanley Hers uh, in the book who is an executive. That was a Easter egg. 
That's an Easter egg. I was, right like, there. I was like, this means something to somebody, but I have no idea what the fuck he's talking about. But I, it must have something to do with your dad, huh? That was amazing. That's my dad. Okay. I did an Easter egg. That was a little Easter egg. That's awesome. Oh, wait, that, that, that actually was your dad? Yes. Oh, so funny. my dad, okay. in the book, there's a reference. His name, he's Stanley Hers. My last name is obviously Perlman. My mom's maiden name is Hers. He liked the sound for a business name, Stanley Hers. Oh, okay. My dad actually used my mom's maiden name as his business name. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. There are about 12 of those in the book, like little Easter eggs. Okay, that's yeah. funny. Because I was like, I don't know what this is, but this is out of nowhere. <laughs> unless, so unless Jeff is secretly a huge like headhunting fan. <laughs> no, it shows you've gone. It shows you've done enough in your career that you get some leeway when no editor calls you out and says, who's Stanley Harrison? <laughs> that was great. It was great because it makes you think and you go, hmm, something weird there. Uh, yeah, okay, so that, so that was, uh, so they were growing yeah, up. Yeah, they were great. My whole book. And, um, yeah. They, um, nobody cared about sports in my house except me. Nobody cared about sports. <laughs> okay. um, I had an older brother. In fact, it's funny because I, the one team I still kind of care about are the New York Jets, right? Mm-hmm. And the only reason I'm a Jet fan is because when my brother was eight and I was six, he declared at the kitchen table one day he was going to be a Giants fan. So I said, all right, I'll be a Jets fan. And I would say my brother would not recognize Eli Manning if he walked down the street with a sign saying, <laughs> I am Eli Manning. And meanwhile, so I got stuck with this dog shit franchise has never won a Super Bowl in my lifetime. Uh, Life is not fair. That, you know? is, that is funny. Um, yeah. And then so one thing I didn't know about you, and I get this from trusted source Wikipedia, um, you actually started after college at the Tennessean in Nashville writing about food and fashion. And whenever I think of the Tennessean, I think of David Halberstam, um, who wrote another one of my favorite basketball books, um, or two of my favorite basketball books. Yeah. And the Jordan book, too. Um, So, yeah. How did did you, food and fashion, I mean, what a a far cry from what you ended up doing. How did that work come about? I was, uh, I mean, so I had interned there the summer before, and uh, I guess I had a successful internship, and they offered me a job at uh, the only position I had open, food and fashion writer. You can see what I'm wearing. I am not a good dresser. <laughs> I am not a good cook. I was the worst food and fashion writer in the country, easily. <laughs> I, but worst of all, and and I think in a way, a, a a way when I'm writing about Kobe, I can understand a little degree. Like I was a, um, I was a cocky little asshole. Like I really was. I was the kid who came out of his college newspaper. I thought I was a ship starting at this major major Metro Daily. Mm-hmm. I think I'm the greatest thing ever. I really mean this. I didn't want to take advice from anyone. I didn't take editing from anyone. I just thought everything I did was great. Thought I was going to be a superstar, blah, 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 blah. And um, what happened is I kept making mistakes, one mistake after another, after another. I could not not make mistakes. I had so many errors in my copy. I didn't know how to report. Mm-hmm. And my editor was a woman named Catherine Mayu, and she um, she saved my career. She she put me on the cop's beat. She, she moved me off from the feature section and said, we were giving you a police scanner and you are going to work on the cop speed and you just have to do who, what, where, when, how, and why, and just get it down Yeah. and um, change my life. And when I was done with that, they gave me, I don't want to make you jealous, but I was the uh, high school wrestling beat writer for the national Tennessee. Oh my God. I'm green with envy. Yeah. yeah. And that changed my, that truly changed my, the course of my journalism career. And then to go, I mean, to go from that, to go from somebody who's covering high school wrestling in Tennessee uh, to sports illustrate. I mean, that's quite a leap. Uh, how did that, what, how did that opportunity come about? Um, it actually dates back. So I went to the university of Delaware and, um, when I was in college, I, so there was an editor at the student newspaper, the review the year before me, I just want to be fair. His name was Alan Nanasinkum. And he, he once said, you know, it'd be fun if someone applied early for the NBA draft, just to see what would happen. Like someone who doesn't play basketball, but then he never did it. Mm-hmm. So my junior year, I applied early for the NBA draft. I wrote a letter to the NBA saying I'm giving up my eligibility. <laughs> 
And uh, I did play for Edna's Edibles of the intramural runner-ups. So, so I just that was a say, big, it was a big deal to give up that eligibility. It, Emma, you could yeah, 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 yeah. So I wrote a letter, and one day I come back to my my dorm room, and my roommate Paul Hansen is like, "Hey, hey, Pearl." Yeah, I actually remember him saying this. He's like, "Hey, Pearl, you got a letter from the NBA." And I open it up, NBA letterhead, and it's like, "Dear Mr. Perlman, as of this date, you are surrendering your eligibility." Blah 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 blah. I'm like, "Holy <laughs> shit!" Then I go home, and um, for whatever break. And someone from the NBA, the head of security calls. And he's like, yeah, so I just have a few questions. He's like, number one, who are you? You know, like we have no, and it was before Google, right? So I was like, well, you know, I'm a a small forward at Delaware. And I was a small forward at Delaware for Edna's (laughs) Edibles. And at the end, he's like, all right, we'll put you in the draft. You know, all right, well, you know, you're, you're, you're surrendering your eligibility, just you're aware and blah, blah, blah. So I did that. And I wrote a piece for my college newspaper. Now, fast forward, I'm at the Tennessee and a bunch of years later. And I desperately want to work at Sports Illustrated. It's my dream. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a letter and I wrote him another letter and I wrote a letter. And finally, someone's like, well, why don't you pitch some story ideas? And I pitched a lame story idea and I pitched another lame story idea. And they were like, no, no. And I was like, well, when I was in college, I did apply early for the NBA draft. And they said, why don't you write that story? And that wound up being my first story as a freelancer in Sports Illustrated. And I was hired by the magazine six months later. Oh, wow. That's cool. That is really cool. And you know, it's funny because obviously that couldn't happen at Sports Illustrated anymore. But in a lot of ways... I hear stories like that. And my story is a little bit similar in, in terms of, oh, I had an email with uh, Bill Simmons about a blog post I had done. So it's those weird little connections. But do you get the sense that for people who are younger than you and younger than me, that these avenues are being cut off left and right? It's, I mean, obviously, like I, I'm an adjunct professor out here at Chapman University. Okay. I just advise yeah. a student newspaper nowadays. And there's a writer there. He's a great kid named Luca Evans. And he said recently, I was like, what's your goal? And he's like, I want to be a Sports Illustrated senior writer. And honest to God, in my head, my first thought was, you need to rethink that. Right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, right. it's not, it's not going to exist. Like, it barely exists now. And so, yes, when we were coming along, the, the routes that we were traveling are have dried up substantially. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of, oh, I can't believe this. I got a job at the National Tennessean. I mean, that has dried up in a lot of ways, you know? Right. right. On the other hand there's a lot of freaking funky, interesting things to do in media. It's just not as obvious. And maybe that involves social media platforms. Maybe that involves, I mean, look at the ringer, look at, I don't know, the 538 or whatever. Like there are different ways. It's just a rethinking of it, I think. Mm-hmm. And you gotta, you probably agree. I mean, you see this, you're, we're literally talking on a podcast. Like you have to be a guy who's going to do everything. You know what I mean? Like yep. everything. Yeah, I, I right. tell every college student I come across, you need a podcast. You need to be on TikTok. You need to be on blah, blah, blah. You need to be on blah, blah, blah. You need to be on blah, blah, blah. You just have to be a brand, not just a writer. Yeah. And that's different. Yeah. And well, let me uh, let me finish with this question. Um, you're somebody who obviously loves writing books. At some point, you said you, you left Newsday because you're going to focus exclusively on writing books. Not exclusively, but it's going to be the main thing you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the same way. I find a certain freedom uh, in in the format. And, you know, this is the opposite of social media. This is the <laughs> This is the dinosaur version, but people still like books. But... I always like to ask somebody like you who, is this your eighth or ninth book? Ninth. Ninth. It's your ninth book. So just tell me a little bit about what is it that appeals to you about writing books? Uh, like what's the magic in it for you? So I love the, um, I love the deep, the deep, 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 deep dig, you know, and I love the obscure finds, even like reading to that Paul Shirley quote. Like, I love that. I talked to Paul Shirley for this book. Yeah. That's not an obvious talk to, you know, like that's not, he was in camp with the Lakers for probably a month, you know, 
I love finding obscure little nuggets of information. And what I really love, like the great thing about books, to be honest, is I'm never in a meeting. I never have a meeting to go to. Yeah. I work out of coffee shops when it's not COVID. Um, it's two years. It's basically like, all right, here's your book deal. We'll see you in two years. Yeah. I love that. Like I love that. That's from, I've been able to be a dad around my kids all the time. I'm the dad who shows up for everything. I'm the dad who's involved in everything. That's really important to me. So it's given me a leverage and a, a freedom that I would not have had if I you know, did a lot of different careers. Well, Jeff Perlman, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. And you ask great questions. I, I can't thank you enough. Seriously, it's been really enjoyable. Segment break. All right, that was Jeff Perlman again. Three Ring Circus comes out Tuesday, September twenty second. Hope you enjoyed that interview. And yeah, thanks for coming back to Apocalypse Sports Radio. Everybody, have a wonderful day. Goodbye.